prepare our hearts now for your word after this wonderful time of worship that we've shared. Uh, our desire is now that uh, you would open us, um, our hearts, our souls, our ears, open us to the word. I pray, Father, that when we hear it and believe it, by the power of your spirit, that our lives would be changed forever. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, um, we're in our <clears throat> third week uh, in this new series that we've called God's Transforming Power. And uh, we've discovered together uh, that transformation, um, real, authentic transformation is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've read uh, this text in Galatians 5 every week, and we'll do that, do that throughout this series. And in that text, we are given this thought that the life that we live, whether it's a life of um, abundance, a life of grace, a life of purpose and joy is available to us if we walk in the Spirit. It's Galatians 5. But we also recognize, and so does our text, that uh, many people choose to live in the lower half of life, in ungrace, live in condemnation, live in works righteousness, live in this area where it's all up to us whether or not we can be good or bad. That's a life that is very difficult to live. That's the life of the flesh, the life of living by our own selfish desires. So what Paul says in our text is that you have the choice. How you live your life, whether in the spirit or in the flesh, is entirely up to you. And so that's what we'll be talking about today. Last week we discovered that the most important fruit of the Spirit is love. And when we look at the extraordinary love that the Father has lavished upon us, we have to ask the question, how do we show that love? How do we live that love? How do we express that love to those around us uh, so that others may see that Jesus is alive? And the question that we asked uh, as we concluded the message last week is this, what does love require of me? Uh, and you need to ask that question every day. What does love require of me uh, in relationship to my wife or my husband? What does love require of me in dealing with my children, with my workplace, with my school? What does love require of me with my friends? How about this one? What does love require of me with EGRs? Now, some of you don't know what EGRs are. EGRs are people that, when you're around them, extra grace is required. Okay, so now, if you're in a group of people and you don't know who the EGR is, it's probably you. Okay, so you need to kind of know that in advance, right? So, uh, but that, how does God help you uh, be transformed? How does God help you love people that are EGRs? Love people that are people who've hurt you. Love people who are your enemies. That's what we talked about last week. And this morning, right out of that uh, important message about love, we find the next fruit of the Spirit is joy. And so I'd like you to listen to the text once again, Galatians chapter 5, verses, um, verses 16 through 25. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. Uh, if you have your devices, if you have a Bible, if you have your sermon notes up on the screen, we want you to be surrounded by the Word of God. And I want to say this, I say this at least once every Sunday, and what do I say now? Read your Bible, okay? Read your Bible. 
It's amazing what's in there. And uh, read your Bible. So here we have Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. This is the word of God for the people of God. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. And then the next paragraph. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, in other words, when you choose to press into your own selfish desires, when you choose to live in the flesh, when you make that choice, the natural results that come out of that choice is as follows. This is kind of a scary list, so hold on. Here's what he says. The results are clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Now, the reason Paul put, and other sins like these, is because if you're like most human beings and you see a list like this and you say, okay, I'm good. Okay, I, I, don't, do, I don't do those things. Paul recognizes that human beings have an enormous capacity to make up new sins. Okay, we, we're really good at that. And so if your thing is not on the list, it's still, it's still there, okay, and other things. So you add yours to the list. Now, and then he says something that's really hard to hear, but I want you to hear it, and we're going to preach about this in a few weeks. Let me tell you again, as I've said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not enter the kingdom of God. Very, very strong words. And then the last paragraph. And this last paragraph now juxtaposes what he just said in the previous paragraph. So he said, if you live in this life of the outhouse, ungrace, condemnation, if you live in this area of sinful, fleshly living, this is what you're going to get. He says, contrary-wise, if you live over here in a life of abundance, the upper half of life, in a life of grace, in a life of God's love and joy and the fruit of the Spirit, then these things will follow. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, and that he gives his list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things, he says. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since, and he says, and I want you to recognize that you've made a choice to follow the Spirit. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. This is God's word for us today. Here, Paul is talking about these two forces, and he uses the word forces, the spiritual nature versus the sinful nature that are constantly fighting each other, constantly pulling you apart. It's like the old Indian proverb. Uh, the proverb says that uh, this Indian felt like there were two dogs kind of pulling at him, and he didn't know which way to go. And somebody said, well, how do you decide which way to go when those two different dogs are pulling at you? He says, I go with the one, whichever one I say sick him to. We have a choice in whether we go with the spirit of selfishness or the spirit of God. We have that choice. And we have to decide every day, sometimes many times a day, to follow the spirit of the Lord. 
Now, we talked about, uh, not only do we talk about love, but we talked about this idea of surrendering a couple of weeks ago. And the, the phrase that Paul uses is that we nail our desires, our sinful nature desires, to the cross. We literally leave them at the cross, recognizing that the sacrifice that Jesus made covers our sins, our brokenness, our sinful nature with the cross, with the blood of Jesus. And when we do that, and we experience the, the love that God has for us, and we do that, and we're in the upper half of life, we're living in that grace and abundance, when we do that, we will experience, and here's his next promise, incomparable joy. We will experience incomparable joy. Now, let me say a word about this. I recognize that uh, when we talk about something like joy, in spite of uh, Andy's enthusiasm, uh, there are people in our service today who would say, you know what, I've, I've just got really nothing to be joyful about. Um, my marriage isn't working. My kids are off the rails. My job is terrible. I don't have enough money. I, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. I just don't know how to love or have joy in that circumstance. God says, I promise you that I will give you that joy in spite of your circumstances, in spite of your circumstances. Incomparable joy. I have a friend who's the pastor at Bayside Covenant Church, Ray Johnston, who uh, said these words recently at a conference. The quickest way to ruin your marriage or quench your children's heart or destroy a business or wipe out a Christian witness is to carry a negative, pessimistic, critical, joyless spirit into your world. Let me read that again. The quickest way to ruin your marriage or quench your children's spirit or destroy a business or wipe out a Christian witness is to carry a negative, pessimistic, critical, joyless spirit into your world. I think all of us recognize that is true. We recognize when someone brings that kind of infection and, and as you're around a person like that for very long, it's really difficult to have a joyful spirit. Now, I recognize also... And knowing that some of you here today are really having a hard time identifying this, how can I have joy in the midst of my circumstances? I realize that that's really hard for some people. Now, now there probably there's probably 10 or 15 people in here today that have this kind of normal, joyous, buoyant spirit. Uh, my mother-in-law is one of those, Sherry's mother, Joanne Wilson. When she gets up at 5 a.m., she's whistling, you know. And when they stay with us, I just want to tell her to go back to bed, but I can't do that. She's my mother-in-law. And, but, but this kind of joyful attitude, you know, my mother-in-law is the kind of person that when she gets up, she says, good morning, Lord, you know, and the rest of us go, good Lord, it's morning, you know, you know, you know. And, and we all have this kind of different way of doing life. So for those of you who don't naturally have this kind of wonderful, joyous, rosy outlook, the question is this, how do we cultivate joy? Because in the scriptures, there's a huge difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is being content with your circumstances. So some of you today are happy because uh, you had good snacks before church, or your kids didn't fight on the way to church, or uh, after church you're going to a really good brunch, or there's something that makes you happy because you're, you're pleased in your present circumstances. But joy is something completely devoid or something completely disconnected to circumstances. Joy is something that is deep inside of you, something that comes from your soul and comes out of you. It's, you can experience that in spite of your circumstances. That's the difference between joy and happiness. We want joy. 
I understand that um, joy is a subject that is hard, I think, when uh, we come to church and we've maybe had a hard time and we say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm just kind of here, I'm here out of ought or should, and, and, but I think what Paul wants to express to each and every one of us today is this joyful spirit that can come from deep in our soul. And I want you to experience that today. Let me be honest. For the most part, joy isn't natural. But it can be cultivated in our souls. So how do we do that? Well, um, we had a, a couple that we knew very well in our church in Roseville, Doug and Carol Fullen, um, a wonderful family uh, in our church there. And uh, Doug and Carol used to tell us about their honeymoon, which was quite unique. So for their honeymoon, they, they live in St. Paul, and um, they did even when they were first married. And uh, because they didn't have any money, uh, their parents, or at least Doug's parents, gave them this beautiful bridal suite at a downtown St. Paul hotel, very old, majestic hotel. And so they're very excited about that. They're going to this bridal suite. It's really awesome and everything. So, so they go there, they check in, they register, and they go into the room and they look around and say, well, yeah, it's pretty nice, I guess. It's kind of, kind of, it's not as much as they expected, but they looked around and, you know, it had a nice view and it had nice furniture and, well, okay, it's pretty good. So they went ahead and went to bed and the next morning, Doug woke up very upset and he went down to the concierge and he complained. Now, it takes a lot for a Minnesotan to complain because they're so nice, you know, they're just, you know, they're, that's the way they're bred, you know, because of the cold and everything. And so he went down there to complain and he said to the concierge, he said, you know what, um, we expected more from the bridal suite. It just wasn't what we expected. He said, when we pulled the bed out of the sofa bed last night, the, the bed mattress was lumpy and the coils were just, we could feel the coils and it just was not a good experience at all. And the concierge said, well, didn't you see the door across from the, the sofa? Well, yeah, we just assumed it was a closet. He said, no, that was your bedroom. And so he goes back to his room, he opens the door and here's this magnificent suite. This heart-shaped bed that was rotating, you know, one of those deals. It had champagne, not on ice anymore, now champagne on water. It had strawberries with chocolate. It had flowers. It was just magnificent. You see, and the thing is, they didn't enjoy it, even though it was already paid for. They didn't open the door. Did you know that joy, I mean irresistible, incomparable joy, is already purchased for you? But in order to experience that, we have to open the door. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. What are some doors that we need to open to experience this kind of inexhaustible joy that sustains us even in times of difficulty? So what we're going to be looking at this morning is uh, some verses from uh, the book of Philippians. Because if you ever want to know about joy, read Philippians. This is a four-chapter stick of dynamite. And I want to encourage you to uh, read Philippians every day this week. Now, I recognize anytime I give you an assignment like this, some of you will, some of you won't. Uh, I know that those of you that went to Catholic school and sat in the front row, always had your hand up, you'll read it, you know, even though you may not want to, you'll read it, so thank you for that. Others of you will read it, but I just want you to know that this is an amazing book that'll fill your heart with joy. It's incredible, so read Philippians, and I just want to say over again, Read your Bible, okay? It's going to do good for you. Read your Bible. So, uh, in fact, in the first chapter of Philippians, 16 times the word joy is used. 
So now some of you would come back and say, okay, we'll do it, you know, because we're good Christians, we'll do it. You know, but you're saying, but I, my heart's not in it. And my heart's not in it because, Pastor, you don't understand my situation. You really don't understand my situation, how hard life is right now, how difficult it is. You don't understand the circumstances of my life. I wake up in the morning and I feel depressed already. So, so I, recognizing that, I want to share with you the context in which Paul wrote Philippians. It's a fair question if you feel that way. It's a fair question. So Paul wrote Philippians. When he did, he was not in an ivory tower, nor was he on a Caribbean cruise. Paul was in a Roman dungeon. Now, uh, the word is translated prison, but if you look at history, what the prisons were like for people like Paul in the first century, it was a dungeon. It was underground. It was dark. It was dank. It was desperate. It was terrible. And here's another piece of information that might help you understand the context of Paul writing the book of Philippians. He was chained to a big, fat, sweaty Roman soldier. He was guarded not just closely, he was chained to a Roman guard. Now in that context, Paul wrote the book of Philippians where he says 16 times in the first chapter, take joy, take joy, take joy. It's not about your circumstances, take joy. So this morning I want to read for you just a, uh, we're going to look at uh, five doors to experience joy, and each of them has a verse from Philippians, but I want to introduce this section to, um, to you from chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. This is while, now remember, as I'm reading this, envision Paul chained to a big sweaty Roman guard uh, in a very dank, dirty, filthy place, and this is what he writes in Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without complaining. Isn't that cool? You know, how can you, how can you be in his situation and not complain? Well, first of all, nobody cares that he was complaining because, you know, they didn't want to hear him. But do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. And then he says, live clean, innocent lives. In that situation, how am I supposed to live a clean life? How am I supposed to live an innocent life? Are you kidding me? Paul says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God. And then he says, how do we do that? Shining as bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. And even as Paul was writing crooked and perverse people, he said, yeah, like that guy over there and that guy over there and this guy I'm chained to. And he was writing all of this. You can do all of this, experience joy in the midst of all of this. And then the next verse is this. Hold firmly to the word of life. That's the word of God. On the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life. Have you ever said that? I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. Now what Paul meant by that pouring it out, he meant literally if my blood is poured out in martyrdom, if my blood is poured out in my witness to the gospel, whatever, if I do that, I do it to the glory of God. Now, I don't know that any of us have signed up for that. I mean, we're not going to say that, right? But I want you to share that joy, he said. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. Isn't that an amazing passage? It's just awesome to me. So let me share with you five doors to pure joy. And the first one is this. Genuine joy springs from trusting God in all circumstances. 
Genuine joy springs from trusting God in all circumstances. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. You see, Paul was able to focus on the kingdom of God even when he was firmly entrenched in the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man put him in a dungeon. The kingdom of God put him in this situation, this circumstance, this kingdom of man, excuse me. But he could always still, in that, in that circumstance, he could still see the kingdom of God. He said, now one day I'll get out of this prison, and maybe not. If I have to pour out my blood for the gospel, I'll do it. But one day if I get out of this place, I'll continue preaching, I'll continue doing what I do. But one day, one day I know that I will stand before God and I will say to the Lord Jesus, I, I did my best to finish the race. In spite of all the circumstances I faced, I did my best to finish the race. Paul was saying, in other words, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my broken heart, regardless of my weak faith, God has promised that he would be alive and active in my life because he always finishes what he starts. He started something in you. When you gave your heart to Jesus, maybe you're a child, a teenager, an adult, some of you recently, when you gave your heart to Jesus, your life in Christ started. And he promised you, I will never let you go. What I started in you, I will bring to completion. In spite of the U-turns, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the circumstances, what I began in you to do that good work of Christ in you, I will bring to completion. He said, I promise you that. No matter what you face, God says, I will be with you through all of your life and into the future so I can trust in him. God always finishes what he starts. Now, I am very sure that when Paul had this Damascus experience, if you've been around the Bible, you know this story. Uh, Paul, before he was Paul, was named Saul of Tarsus, and he was a, uh, not only a criticizer and a uh, a person that was supposed to round up Christians and, and, and put them away. Many people think he actually had a part in killing Christians. So that was his past life. He meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. The light shines. He's blinded. Jesus speaks to him. And when Jesus speaks to you, you better follow the light. And he did. And his life was completely transformed. And I believe that when, G, when Paul was first saved and when this light came on, he was probably really excited about his life. God wants me to go and preach the gospel. So I'm sure Paul thought something like this. He said, I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm going to rent the Colosseum. And uh, we're, going to have a, we're going to have a rally, you know, like a Billy Graham crusade, only it'll be a Paul of Tarsus crusade. And we're going to have thousands of people there, and we're going to have a call to come to Christ, and people are going to come down by the thousands, and while the choir uh, of toga-clad uh, choristers are singing Just As I Am, and, and Paul would say to the crowd, you know what, come forward, the chariots will wait, and it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be great, and it's, I'm sure that's what Paul had in mind, but instead, he finds himself where? In a Roman dungeon? Chained to this, 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 this guard? And by the way, they change the guards every two to four hours. So, I mean, the guy the, the, and the guard, I'm sure, was just, oh, no, not Paul. I don't want to be chained to him. He's going to yak, yak, yak the whole time about this Jesus guy. But, but th that was constantly what was going on. Every two to four hours, a brand new man to talk to, to tell about the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being that guard? I mean, you're chained to Paul. And Paul would say, hey, hey oh, look at me. 
I'm talking to you. You know, I want you, I want to tell you about Jesus. I don't want to hear about it. Stop talking. Hey, you're not going anywhere. You might as well look at me. I'm going to talk to you and you're going to hear me. You know, you're going to do it. So do you know how much God loves you? He would say to that guard, do you know that Jesus died for you on the cross? And so in the spite of this tremendously ugly, dirty, filthy circumstance, Paul said, I will find joy in the gospel as I share that with other people. Paul said in Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yeah, it doesn't look like the Roman Colosseum and thousands of people coming to Christ, but one by one, I can reach somebody for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we forget this. This is another way of saying what Paul said. What you don't see God doing is always greater than what you do see God doing. The things that God are doing, even when you don't see it, in the midst of your difficult circumstances, is always greater than the things that you do see God doing. There was a time um, after uh, I was reinstated to the ministry, to the pastoral ministry, and this was uh, February of 2000, and I was available for a call to a church, um, but our phone didn't ring. (laughs) And uh, finally, uh, one little church from Kansas uh, called me and asked if uh, I'd be interested. And in, I said, well, I'd like to talk to you, but uh, let me tell you about my history the last three years out of the, out of the ministry because of a gambling addiction, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you could just hear, as I was talking to this person on the phone, they couldn't get off the phone fast enough. Well, uh, good talking to you. Well, well, we'll be in touch, you know, one of those kind of deals. So I knew this wasn't going to be easy. But what Sherry and I didn't know is we prayed every day faithfully on our knees, prayed, God, are you going to give me a chance to preach again? Are you going to give me a chance to pastor again? Lord, please, please give me that opportunity. We prayed every day. What we didn't know that about 1,700 miles away in Chandler, Arizona, God was doing something in a little church there. Now, uh, most of you know Stacy Heimke. She was the chairman of the search committee. And she, she tells, if you ever tell you that story someday, I think she said something like they went through a hundred different resumes and they contacted many pastors and asked them if they'd be interested. And all of them said, uh, not interested, you know, strip mall, you know, you can smell the pizza through the walls. No, not interested, you know. And, uh, and, so, she, and so they were very discouraged. The church was very discouraged. They couldn't find a pastor. And finally, uh, John Odelfer was the acting Pacific Southwest uh, superintendent uh, told Stacy, you know what, you might want to check out this guy that I know, his name's Dwayne Cross, and told, told her the story, and she said, well, he kind of sounds like an idiot, but I think that we're about ready to try that, you know, we'll do whatever it takes, and so, so uh, and then while that was happening, my mother-in-law, Joanne Wilson, you know, Miss Yippy Dippy in the morning, Joanne Wilson was whispering to Gordon Lynch, who was the chairman, you know what, my son-in-law is available for being a pastor. And his name's Dwayne Cross. And so both of these people were hearing different messages from different people. And eventually they called me and I accepted the call and came out July 1 of 2000. And so God, uh, we didn't realize it. We were so anxious. What's God going to do? We know that God is acting in our lives right now, but what's God doing? And we couldn't see what he's doing in the bigger picture, but we trusted the Lord. We trusted the Lord. And God was doing something much greater that we couldn't see when we were trusting in him. Joy comes from trusting in God in all circumstances. Door number two. This is a tough one for some of you. Door number two, uh, second door to pure joy is releasing all regrets about my past. Releasing all regrets about my past. Whenever I find one of those grumpy, critical, um, negative Christ followers 
and I dig a little bit into their story, what you usually find is a person who has not forgiven themselves for past sin. Either that or they have not forgiven someone else for hurting them. People that live in that kind of, um, that kind of sphere of brokenness, that kind of sphere of hurt and pain, they never move past it. They never resolve it. They never release it to the Lord. Releasing all regrets about my past. It reminds me of the, uh, um, a few years ago, this is a true story, an IRS uh, employee received a letter, and here's what the letter said. Uh, a man wrote it, and he said, 20 years ago, I cheated on my taxes. I felt terrible all these years, enclosed as a check for $100. If I don't feel better after I send it, I'll send the rest later. Okay. Isn't that kind of the way we do with our sins? You know, okay, yeah, okay, that sin I'm going to give to God. But this one, this one, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant, you know, I'm kind of hesitate to, hesitate to, to let, it, uh, let, let, let it go because I was so bad and I was so terrible. And, but here's what Paul says. Now remember, this is the Paul who was a murderer and a slanderer of Christians. And this is what he wrote in Philippians 3. But I focus on one thing, forgetting the past, and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. Now, Paul said, with his kind of horrendous past, slanderer and murderer of Christians, with this kind of horrendous past, he says, I am forgetting the past. And look at now, that word forgetting there is a very unique word in the Greek language. It doesn't mean to sweep under the rug and to go, nya, 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 I don't want to hear it anymore. What it means is that you've taken care of it. You can forget it because it's been left at the foot of the cross. You can, you can let go because Jesus now has hold of it and you no longer need to hold on to your past sin or your past hurt that somebody else sinned against you. You can literally release that and set that before the cross. That's, just Jesus, that's what Paul said when forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Forget, let go, forgive, recognize that you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And again, some of you would say, well, pastor, but you don't know how terrible my sin is. I was talking to somebody after the first service about this. You don't know how horrible I've been in the past. You don't know what a horrible thing was done to me in the past. I've said this many times, and one of my favorite theologians is Watchman Nee, a Chinese theologian. He wrote back in the 1940s, 1950s. He wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life. And here's what Watchman Nee would say to anyone who said, you only, if you only knew how bad my sin was, you'd know that I have a hard time letting go. Here's what Watchman Nee said. How dare you presume that the blood of Christ does not cover every sin? How dare you think that your sin is somehow bigger or uglier than the blood of Jesus that saved you? Friends, we've got to let go of our past. And we've got to let go of those who hurt us. We've got to leave that at the cross because a person that is filled with joy like Paul was 16 times in the first chapter of Philippians 1, when we have joy like Paul did, it wasn't that he had a clean background. He had just the opposite. But he was able to leave that sin at the cross, leave that broken heart at the cross, and be filled with the joy of the Lord. Jesus said, I will remember your sins no more. You want joy? You'll never have it if you are stuck in your past sins and your past hurts.
let them go and put them at the cross of Jesus. Door number three, understanding the power of prayer. Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. A recent study that was done at the university, at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, uh, they examined the effects of worry and anxiety on the physical body. And their determination was, this is a scientific study, their determination was that 70% of all sickness and diseases has its root in worry and anxiety. 70%. How do we avoid that in our modern society? How do we avoid worry and anxiety? I believe it is with prayer. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything Give thanks. Prayer provides three key ingredients to experiencing joy in our everyday lives. It provides connection. Okay, we all need a connection to God. We need to plug in to the Holy Spirit, which is available to us. Galatians 5 says all you have to do is choose to submit to the Holy Spirit rather than choosing to submit to the flesh or to the selfish desires, right? We have to choose. We have to plug in to the Holy Spirit. So um, years ago, when we were doing our backyard, we had, I had some people from church helping me do our backyard, and one of the people was Todd Thompson, used to be a part of our church. He and his father-in-law and some others were helping us uh, design, uh, Lisa Cummings designed our backyard, and so we were doing all the backyard stuff. And we were just got the power over to the fountain. We're going to plug the fountain in and have the water, you know, uh, flow and all that. And every time we plugged it in, the motor would kind of whir a little bit and then shut off. And a breaker would break. And so I'd go into the, uh, the, the guest bathroom where they have the little reset switch. And I'd push the button and then run back out. We'd turn it on again and boom, it would happen. It like happened 20 times. We we're getting so frustrated. Um, Todd's father-in-law was an electrician. He said, I don't know what's going on. Everything's right. I mean, we're doing everything. And so I went back in the bathroom one time. And this time when I went in the bathroom, I found Todd's two little twin daughters, Emma and Annie, in there. And they were pushing the little red button. And then running back in the bedroom. And they hear all the adults going crazy. And then and they come back and push the little red button. And it goes and over and over and over again. What we need to remember that, hey, we're just like, we're like anybody. We cannot survive without power. We can't. We have to plug in. We have to connect. So that's the first part of prayer. The second part is direction. Connection, direction. Lord, give us direction in our lives, right? How many times do we play, pray that? And what we want is kind of the future all laid out. Sherry's constantly saying, well, what are we going to do 20 years from now? I don't know. I'm probably dead, but, uh, you know, you'll be doing something. But uh, so what are we going to do? Well, we don't know how far, but here's what we do know. God says, I promise you in the, in the Psalms, he said, to be a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. That's pretty good, right? Okay, now, now in those days, they had a lamp, right? Didn't have a big flashlight, you know, a lamp. And that lamp would just give enough illumination that show about six feet in front of you. That's really God's promise. That's really all he does promise is I'll, I'll give you that. I'll, I'll show you what I want you to do in the next six feet. But in the future, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. So he says, I will give you direction, but you have to trust me. And then the last thing he says, I'll give you protection. Uh, put on the whole armor of God. Our shield of strength, put on the whole armor of God. And the, psalm, the psalmist said, his banner, which is like a tarp, his banner over me is love, a covering. The antidote for worry, the antidote for anxiety is connection, direction, and protection. The next door to pure joy is this, serving instead of sulking. 
Now, some of you are going, I don't know if I want to hear this part, okay? Because you can always tell and smell from two weeks ago, you can always tell and smell the aroma of a joyful servant, right? Go over here after service and check out the kids' rooms. And the kids will be having a blast, but check out the people that are serving in there. Most of them, uh, there's two women in each class. And check out the joy that they have in serving. Now, sometimes it's hard because they've got your kids. But it's still joy-filled, and they're having a wonderful time. The joy in serving. Uh, Yesterday at our leadership retreat, uh, we had 28 leaders, and uh, we were going to have lunch served, but we didn't want any of the leaders to serve because we wanted them to be part of the, the seminar. And so we asked two new people in our church, uh, Kelly White and Nicole Miller, two, both of them new in the last few months, and to, if they would serve. And to see them serve with a spirit of joy, it was just beautiful. And to serve without sulking. Now, you know the type that drives you nuts, right? Uh, those who are workers and love to work, and then those who are whiners. Those who are gracers or grace givers and those who are gripers. Those who are ministers instead of mumblers. Those who are blessers instead of bemoaners. I had fun putting that list together. You know the type we're talking about. Nobody wants to be around those people, and especially if it's you. Service comes from a place of joy, great joy in our hearts. And then the last door to genuine joy is this, and this is so critical. It's having a heart of thanksgiving. Listen to what Paul said, chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. He said, every time I think of you, I give, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. Having that attitude of gratitude, having that heart that is so filled with thanksgiving. Consider this for a moment. When you recognize who you are in Christ, when you recognize that your past has been forgiven, your present has been redeemed, and your future has been secured, when you recognize that, doesn't that kind of overwhelm your circumstances? Doesn't that overwhelm that sadness and distress that you feel from the things that are happening right now? When you really get a hold of Jesus and Jesus gets a hold of you, and that doesn't mean you're not going to be sad at times. That doesn't mean you're not going to be depressed at times. It doesn't mean either. But it does mean that when you look into the face of Jesus and you see the way he looks at you and and you see what you have in him, his love for you, it changes everything. The ten lepers... Jesus, these are people that were untouchable, and Jesus went by, and he wasn't even supposed to be near a leper village, but he went by, and he healed 10 lepers of their disease, a terrible disease, and he healed those 10 lepers. Nine of them went skipping off to tell their friends, nothing wrong with that, but one of them turned around, came back to Jesus, knelt down at his feet, and he said, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for healing me, for giving me new life, And as he walked away, the Bible says he walked away with his heart filled with joy. When you are so thankful to the Father for who you are and what you have in him, I'm not talking about the little kingdom. Little kingdom is okay. We have to live here. I'm talking about the big kingdom. When you recognize how much you have in Christ Jesus, that thankfulness and that gratitude just simply well up into your heart. 
Here's, here's the way that the writer of Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 12. He said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, let me tell you what that means. Fix our eyes, that's a, uh, a wrestler's term. A wrestler's term, you know, when you get somebody in a half Nelson and uh, you get them there and you kind of look down into their eyes when you're a wrestler and uh, what you were looking for is fear because you know, now they, they know that you know that you've got them, right? But the idea is that you're compelling them to look at you, okay, before they tap out or whatever. You're compelling them to, that's what this is. Let us fix our eyes. Let our eyes be compelled to look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So what was the joy that was set before Jesus that made, it okay, made the cross okay? What was the joy that he was looking forward to that made the cross bearable? Well, there's only one thing we see. That's the resurrection, the ascension, and his eternal presence with the Father, his eternal presence with you and I. The joy that was set before him is his relationship with you and with the Father. How's, how can that be anything but amazing? And when you are compelled to look, you know, it's like uh, when you got a little a, a toddler, three or, two or three or four-year-old, you know, they're, you know, you're trying to give them instructions and they're not listening to you. What do you do? You put your hands around their little face, you know, like this. You say, look at me, Riley, you know, look at mommy, look at daddy. Do you hear what I'm saying? You know, and you can almost feel Jesus doing that to you. Look at me. Do you know how much I love you? Do you know how that I have buried every one of your sins under my blood? Do you know how amazing it's going to be when you get to heaven? Do you know how incredible it is that I have given you this life on this planet to share the light of Jesus with other people? Look at me. Do you see how amazing this is? God says, I want you to have that kind of joy. I want you to experience that kind of joy. We are compelled to meet his eyes. One day... One day, maybe very soon, we will stand before God and he will show us the depths of his love and the breadth of his grace. And that will be joy. Would you bow your heads with me, please?